You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. If you're visiting here, there are black uh, hardback Bibles in your pew you can grab if you want to follow along there. I try to preach in such a way that you need an open Bible. Um, but yeah, Mark chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Uh, tonight, for the third and final time in this series, we're going to be taking a look at Jesus' encounter with a man possessed with a legion of demons. I've never preached the same text three weeks in a row, but here we go. Uh, t- two weeks ago, we considered Jesus' great power and his great authority over demons, right? As Pastor Stephen was uh, said in his prayer. Uh, and we saw that Jesus is to be feared, that he is to be respected and shown reverence because he is the son of the most high God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And last week, we saw the great grace and power of Jesus to save even the worst sinner. We saw how Jesus can set free those who are enslaved by sin and Satan. So, So what we've done these past two weeks is we've really thought a good bit about who Jesus is and what he can do. We've considered his person and his power, you could say. Uh, and it's been a really great study for us. Uh, I know it has been for me. Uh, this is my favorite passage in the whole Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, we, we meet together each week to partake of the ordinary means of grace and, and, and learn more about Christ and to make much of him. That's why we're here, right? to learn about him and make much of him. And we've really taken our time these last couple of weeks to see who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners, as we do every week. <laughs> And, and, and now this week, we're going to consider the response of the believer, right? The response of the believer to what Jesus has done for him. But we're still going to make much of Jesus, right? And we're going to do so by seeing how he transforms lives, how he takes someone who is enslaved to sin and makes them into one of his people, how he makes rebels into disciples. And to see this, we're going to look at the great transformation that God wrought in the formerly demon-possessed man in this passage. We're going to look at the last six verses of this narrative and see the change in the man, right? And and in seeing how he changed, we're going to see a beautiful picture of discipleship, right? We're going to see a picture of the transformed life of a sinner who has been set free by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now remember, I've been saying this a lot lately, the major themes of this gospel, there, there are two of them. One This gospel is meant to tell us who Jesus is. And the second theme of this gospel is to teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we spent the last two weeks considering who Jesus is and what he's done. And now we're going to see the good and godly response to Christ. Namely, the response of discipleship. It's really the only right response you can have to the Son of God is to be his disciple. And to do that... I want to point out five examples that we see in this text about discipleship. So here they are. Here's my outline. Uh, The first thing we're going to consider is that the one who was once a slave to Satan is now a slave to Jesus, right? The one who was once a slave to Satan is now under the lordship of Jesus and has become his disciple. And then from there, we're going to consider the different desires that are now brought about in the heart of the disciple. The disciple first has a desire for Jesus himself. Second, the disciple has a desire to learn from Jesus. Third, the disciple has a desire to obey Jesus. And fourth, the disciple has a desire to proclaim Jesus. 
And so that's where we're going this evening. Now, if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God of all grace, thank you for this time that you've appointed for us to gather together as your people on your day to sit under the ministry of your word. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open up this text to us. We ask that you would speak to us through your word and plant it deep in us so we can learn from you. Please, Lord, teach us what it means to be a disciple of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. Soften our hearts that we might be led to repentance, that we might be encouraged, and that we might glorify Christ all the more. Bless us now as you see fit, and do with us what you will. Glorify yourself, sovereign Lord. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You guys can go ahead and sit down. So let's just go ahead and dive into this first heading, right? I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover. Um, the man who was once a slave to Satan is now a slave to Jesus. Under the lordship of Christ has now become Jesus' disciple. And I see that in verse 15. So I'm going to read that to you again. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I want to note very simply right off the bat that the man whose godly example of discipleship that we're considering this evening is the man who had had the legion. I really like that. He had had it. He is the man who was formerly possessed, but he is the man who has now been set free by Christ. Right? So to begin with, I think it's going to serve us well, especially because we have some visitors here, right? the providence of God, I put this into my notes, uh, for us to review, it's going to be good for us to review uh, this man's former bondage to sin and Satan, and review how Jesus set him free, and also see again how his story is the story of all the redeemed of God. Right? So let's review this man's bondage. He was possessed by a legion of demons, which is up to 6,000, right? We don't know how many, but thousands, most likely. He, is, he was under the rule and dominion of Satan. His every move was directed by the demons. He was not in control of his body. His mind had been taken from him. The text tells us uh, earlier in chapter 5 that he had been harming himself day and night, cutting himself with stones. He was cut off from life, right? He lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead. And as we see evidenced in the fact that the pigs were drowned... We see that this slavery to Satan was going to end in this man's death. That's Satan's goal, is to destroy image bearers of God. This man was blind to any good spiritual realities. You could say that he was spiritually insane. He was wild and fierce and hostile to the Lord Jesus. He was completely under the dominion of the devil. 
He could not save himself, or I'm sure he would have set himself free already. Nobody else around him could save him either, try as they might, tying him up, kicking him out of town, whatever it was. But no matter what was tried, this man seemed hopeless and as good as dead and damned. And as we learned last week, what we see very literally and visibly in this possessed man is spiritually true of everyone in their natural state. What is physically true of him is spiritually true of all of those who are in the flesh, right? And if you're curious, that's how you were born. You were born in the flesh. You were born a natural man, as Paul would say it. We are born, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, children of God's wrath. You're not born a child of God. That doesn't exist. God has to make you into his child. We were born children of God's wrath. We were born sinners, sinful in nature, to grow up to become sinful indeed. Being led around by Satan, as Paul tells us, the prince of the power of the air, blinded by the devil, gladly following his direction. We are born slaves to sin and slaves to unrighteousness, unable to do any spiritual good. We are, in our natural state, unable to do anything that pleases God. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, 7, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God or at enmity with God. It will not please him. Indeed, it cannot please him. We're born hostile to God, wanting nothing to do with him in our natural state, under the dominion of the devil. As John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is the unbelieving world, in the power of Satan. All of us Christians were once in the same place spiritually as the man in our text was, and unbelievers still are. Right? And, he, and here's, their, here's their status, under the dominion of Satan, slaves to sin and Satan, unable to free and save themselves, headed to hell and not even really caring. But this man in our text had had the legion. He had had the legion. He is no longer under the power of Satan. Rather, he has been set free by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now free from the tyrannical rule of the devil. The Lord Jesus, in grace upon grace... Though the man was not looking for Jesus or even desiring to be saved, Jesus reached down and set him free. By divine power and compassionate love, Jesus broke the power of sin and Satan that bound this man. He broke that power and cast the demons out of him so the man could be free. With a word, the Lord Jesus released this man from his bondage to the devil. Christian, he has done the same for you. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. While we were still in our sin and in our slavery, he died that we might be made free. He came to us while we were in chains, and we were gladly in our chains, by the way. We liked our chains. We liked our sin. But by grace alone, he broke those chains and granted us the gift of faith so that we might look to him and be saved. So that we could trust in his atoning work on the cross and his perfect life and receive the righteousness of God. He set us free from our slavery to sin and Satan. And he did so by grace and through the blood of his cross. And similar to the demon-possessed man, by a word. Namely, the word of pardon from him. We have been saved set free. He has overcome and destroyed the works of the devil so that we might know him, be forgiven, and be free. So like the man in our text, we've been set free from the tyrannical rule of Satan. But just because both we and this man have been set free, that does not mean that we are slaves to no one. You're always a slave to somebody, right? There are no free agents in the world. 
Everyone has a master. Everyone's a slave to someone. Right? We're free from a cruel slave master, but now we have been brought under sweet slavery to Christ. Here's an imperfect analogy for you. Very imperfect. Uh, it's like a slave who has been beaten and tortured all of his life being set free. And now that free man goes and willfully, gladly signs up to have for his master the one who set him free. Gladly and willfully signing up for this. Right, that baby knows what I'm talking about. She's clapping her hands. Amen. Right, and Romans 6 makes this much clear to us. Check this out. Since we are no longer slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. Right? Since we're no longer slaves to Satan, we now are, as Paul often refers to himself, slaves to Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, right? We were once unable to please the Lord, unable to do anything spiritually good, slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Righteousness meaning obedience to the Lord Jesus, obedience to a new master. Paul says even earlier in this chapter 6 of Romans that our old self is dead. We've died with Christ. And as he was raised from the dead, so too we have been raised to walk in newness of life, a new life of obedience to him. So we're no longer slaves to the devil, no longer under his power or authority, but now we are under another authority, namely the authority of the Lord Jesus. Right? We are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creatures or new creations in Christ. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus has changed us, and now we belong to him. We are not the same as we once were when we were in bondage to the devil. And we see this spiritual transformation, right, of, of slavery to the devil, from slavery to the devil, to slavery to Jesus, slavery to sin, to slavery to righteousness. We see this transformation manifest itself outwardly in the man in our text. Let's go with me here. He, he goes from being wild and hostile toward the Lord Jesus. I would argue in verse 2 he was rushing upon Jesus to attack him. He goes from that to tame and docile, sitting calmly with Jesus. He goes from wanting to, nothing to do with Jesus to wanting to be near Jesus. Verse 18, he begs him that he might be with him. This man is a new creature, just like we are, and he's new in Christ. Having been united with Jesus, united to Christ by faith, as Paul would say, this man has changed radically. He's now under the lordship of Christ, and being under that lordship, he provides us with a great example of discipleship. He gives us a great example of what it means to be a slave to Jesus, what it means to be a new creation in Christ, what it means to be a disciple. But quickly now, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean? Uh, being a disciple is multifaceted for sure, right? I'm not trying to flatten that out. Uh, there's much nuance to it in different areas. But for our purposes this evening, I have made a makeshift definition uh, that I think captures at least an aspect, I would argue probably the most important aspect of what it means to be a disciple, right? So here's my redneck Minford definition for the evening. A disciple is one who, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, has been radically transformed 
and is still being transformed in their desires. Someone who, by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ, has been radically transformed and is still being transformed in their desires. And when I say radically, I mean that in the old Latin sense, at the core, radically, at the core of the person. Right? A disciple is someone who has had their heart fundamentally changed in an instant by the grace of God and is now, after that, continually growing in that change of heart, as Paul would say in Romans 8, being conformed to the image of Christ. Right? So fundamentally, being a disciple means that you have had your desires changed, or as a redneck minister friend of mine says, you've had your want to fixed. Right? Your desires have changed. Your want to has been fixed. Doesn't that just capture the depth of theological truth? I love that. Uh, it's true, though. Right? And those changed desires lead to a change in life. Right? That's why disciples live differently than unbelievers, because their desires have changed. But nevertheless, it starts in the heart with what God has, by grace, done first in us through the Lord Jesus. We've been transformed, and now we are growing further in that transformation every day. Right. But what does being a disciple look like? What does that look like? I think this formerly possessed man gives us four broad examples. And before we go through them, please, just let, me, let me plead with you for a moment to open your hearts to what you see in this text. It would be very easy for you to sit here and say, I already know all of those things. Because right? I knew all of these things before I studied for this passage, right, or for this sermon. So just hear me out. Open your hearts to this text. Let this convict you and lead you to repentance if you see that your life is incongruent or inconsistent with what we see in this text as a mark of a disciple, let it convict you and lead you to repentance. Likewise, let this encourage you as you see that your life indeed does line up with what we see in the text. Be encouraged by that. Take your assurance. Be encouraged. But be challenged. Repent where you need to. Be encouraged and set your eyes on the Lord Jesus. All right? That's, that's our goal here. Well, let's consider first. The first desire change of the disciple. What is it? A desire for Jesus himself. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Begged him. This is touching, right? This man had a desire to be with Jesus, to just be near him, to be around him, to know him, right? This is not a casual, run-of-the-mill desire to be around someone that you're kind of fond of, right? How most of you feel towards one another, like, eh, they're all right. I'd hang out with them, I guess. That was a joke. You can laugh. I know a lot of you guys care about each other. Some of you don't, right? You know who you are. Um <laughs> But no, in all sincerity, I imagine that this man was on his knees before Jesus, tugging at his garment and begging him, please, Lord, let me be with you. Please. I just want to go with you. I love you. Please let me come along. This man wants to be with Jesus. How sweet and simple this is for us to see. That the disciple, the slave to Jesus, the one who has been set free by Christ, just wants him. Just wants Jesus. He wants to kiss his feet. He wants to thank him face to face. He longs to be near him at all times. The disciple looks to Jesus with the eye of faith and says, where you are is where I want to be. This is a simple love for the Savior. A simple 
yet strong and profound desire for Jesus. You could compare it to a small child crying out for his mother and wanting to be near her because he loves her and finds his home with her. This is the desire of the disciple for Jesus. I just want to be with him. Very simply, the, the first and greatest change in the disciple, the root from which everything else springs, is a change in affection for Christ. The disciple is transformed, like the man in our text, from hostility to Jesus to having a great love and affection for him. A deep and abiding love and gratitude and desire to know him and be with him always. Right? This is the chief reason that we desire to go to heaven, isn't it? If it isn't, you need to check your heart. Right? We don't desire heaven because of mansions or streets of gold. It's not, it's not a desire to be reunited with deceased loved ones or even escape the pain of the world, as amazing as those realities are for those who have been redeemed by God. But rather, we desire heaven because that is where our Lord is. Serious question, if Jesus wasn't in heaven, would you want to go? The answer of the disciple is, I want to go wherever he is. We desire him. We want to be with him always. The disciple's heart cries out, I'll trade anything for him. Let goods and kindred go, right, as Luther's hymn says. I'll give up anyone and anything for him that I might know him more deeply. There's nothing that I won't do to be near to him and to have him. This is really just the first and greatest commandment come to life in the heart of the disciple. As we looked at a few weeks ago, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And though none of us keep that commandment perfectly, the disciple's heart is changed in the beginning to desire to keep that commandment. And then the pursuit begins for the rest of the life of the disciple. And really, if you think about it, how could we not have great affection for him? I say this every week. How could we not have great affection for him? Consider what he's done for us. Right? That he died for us. Simply, if we would sit and really think through that, what it means that the Lord Jesus died for me. Like Spurgeon said, my theology can be summed up in four words. Jesus died for me. If we would really sit and think about that, that he suffered the righteous wrath of God in our place as a substitute for us that we had earned, not him. That the Holy One was numbered among the transgressors for our sake. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That the righteous one traded his holy life of obedience in the room instead of sinful men. The righteous for the unrighteous. Consider that he set us free from sin. That he's broken the power of Satan that was once over us. That, that he has made us into new creatures. That he's turned away the wrath of God that hung against us. And set us free to live to God in Him. He's given us life. Not just eternal life, but real life that began the moment we believed in Him. You ever sit around and think, I was talking to my sister about this. What do unbelievers do? They don't know God. What are their lives like? Devoid of any true meaning. Devoid of the grace of God in their lives. He's given us life. He's loved us dearly. And now our desire is chiefly for him. And again, all other changes, all other desires that the disciple has stems from this first one. Our most basic and principal affection has changed. We love Christ and everything else follows. But the second change of desire in the disciple is the desire to learn from Jesus. 
Verse 15 tells us that the man is sitting with Jesus. All right? in, in the parallel account in Luke, chapter 8, verse 35, Luke says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. So this man goes from being wild and hostile to Christ, running around like a man unhinged, to sitting down quietly at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And as I mentioned briefly last week, this is the posture of discipleship. You sit at the feet of a rabbi. Right? This man now, in a very literal sense, is a disciple. And I say literal because disciple, methedes, means learner. Right? He's listening to Jesus. He's taking in every word of Christ. He has a hunger to hear from the Lord. Right? What a transformation that this is. This, this tells us that the true disciple, the one who is a slave to Christ, earnestly desires to be taught by Jesus. The saved person says, teach me everything that you can tell me. Right? He says, he says I, I want to know what you think. I want to know your commandments. I want to know what pleases you. I want to know what really matters in life and death. Teach me, Lord. That's what the disciple says. You could put it this way. To be a disciple means that you've come to the end of yourself and you admit your own ignorance and stupidity. As our catechism says, why do you need Christ as your great prophet? Pretty sure a paraphrase is because I'm stupid and I need someone to teach me. It's one of Christ's offices, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, as the great prophet, he instructs his people. We come to Jesus in faith and say, I'm a wicked fool and I need instruction from God. Please, Jesus, be my great prophet. To be a disciple means to, in a very real way, start over with your mind. I'm serious. It's to start over with your mind. It's to look yourself in the mirror and say, I don't know anything. I've been a fool for so long. I've been under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil for so long that I cannot clearly think on my own. I need to learn from my Savior or I cannot know anything. To be a disciple is to, in humility and love for Jesus, submit what you think you know to his lordship. It's to submit what you once formerly considered to be wise and let it be evaluated by Jesus. It's to love the Lord with all your mind. To submit your worldview and way of thinking to Jesus Christ. To be a disciple is to humble yourself before the infinite wisdom of the Son of God and to learn from him. You abandon the foolishness and false wisdom of the world. You abandon what the world says is good. You set aside what the culture thinks. Just real quick, this isn't in my notes. How often do we really, like, evaluate what we think? You ever had someone tell you, hey, man, what should I do in this situation? Or you think, man, what would I do in this situation? And you just pop off, I'd do this. Do you, do you ever then go and evaluate, is that biblical? Am I thinking like a, a worldling? Or am I thinking like a Christian? You set aside what the world thinks. You, you listen to everything that you hear critically. You accept nothing without first filtering it through Christ. You stop listening to the opinions of men and you weigh everything by the word of God. And you put away anything and everything that contradicts Jesus. In short, this means that disciples love the Bible. They do. Disciples love the Bible. And not just the Gospels. Right? Right? We want to learn from Jesus, but that does not mean that we only read the Gospels where Jesus quite literally spoke, right? That's called red-letter Christianity. It'll send you down a real bad path real fast, and it'll lead you into some heresies. Let's fight about it in the parking lot later. It's bad. Don't do it, right? 
The, the whole Bible is the Word of God. The whole Bible is the Word of Christ, not just parts. Remember God's triune. If God said it in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus was there. He is the eternal Son of God. The whole book is His book. The Christian loves the Scriptures. But why? Why does the Christian love Scripture? This is something that's taken me a long time to realize, right? Anyone in here have been guilty of loving doctrine just because you like to learn? Yeah, this is a Reformed Baptist church. There ain't, there's more than three of us. Come on, right? We like to learn doctrine. But hear me. We love the Scriptures because in the Scriptures we hear from our Master. That's why. We don't love the Bible because we're in the Reformed tradition and have been handed down sola scriptura and we really like how that sounds. We don't love the Bible just because it's a very old religious book that comes highly recommended to us. We love the Bible because in it we hear Jesus speak to us by his spirit as we study the word. That's why we love the Bible. We know we're not going to hear from him anywhere else except through his word. So we come to the Bible in deep humility to have our minds and wills laid open by the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be instructed and corrected by his word. The disciple loves the Bible. Arrogance perishes, or it at least begins to perish, when you become a disciple because you recognize that Jesus is wiser and he knows everything. And you want to know what he says about it all. But the third change that happens in the heart of the disciple is this. The disciple desires to obey Jesus. In verse 18, here's my example. We see the man beg Jesus that he'd be able to go with him in the boat. In verse 19, we see Jesus tell the man no and instead commission him to do a different task. And in verse 20, we see the man's response to Jesus' command. And he went away. He went away. He just went. That's it. He went away. Jesus commanded him. He said, no, you can't come with me, but you're going to do this. And the man went away. He went. Notice that he didn't argue with Jesus. He didn't pout. He didn't throw up his hands and say, well, that's not what I want to do. Why can't I go with you? Who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? Why can't I do what I want? He didn't do that. Rather, the man sweetly submitted himself to the rule of his Savior. He humbly did as the Lord Jesus commanded him. Though he wanted to go with Jesus, though he earnestly desired to go, and that was a good desire, right? Though he wanted to go, Jesus told him no and sent him another way, and he gladly complied with Christ. To, to, to be a disciple, then, means to submit yourself to the commands of Jesus in quick and glad obedience to your Lord. We need to hear this, right? We need a bit more Puritan in us. The disciple dares not to argue with his master. Does a slave argue with his master? No. The disciple knows the wisdom of his king. The disciple knows that since he has learned from Jesus, that what Jesus says is the best way. The disciple has seen and experienced the power of Christ and has come to know that he is God. And from that, the disciple recognizes that Jesus has the right to command whatsoever he wills and the disciple must obey. So again, in humility, the disciple does as Jesus says. I'm starting to learn, even just thinking about this as I'm preaching it, humility is one of the chief markers of the disciple. We humble ourselves to the lordship of Christ. You could summarize discipleship with that, maybe. To humbly and in love submit yourself to the Lord Jesus in everything. 
But this desire to obey Jesus is in all things. It's in every area. It's no, no corner or compartment of your life is off limits. There is no part of the disciple's life that he will not submit to Jesus. I'll say it again. There is no part of the disciple's life that he will not submit to Jesus. Or she, not being sexist, right? I'm just a guy and I wrote this. There are she disciples, right? There is no deep desire or will that the disciple refuses to yield to the word of God. The disciple recognizes and lives in harmony with the fact that Jesus is Lord. That he is Lord over their money, Lord over their free time, Lord over their job, Lord over their family, Lord over their entertainment choices, Lord over their speech, Lord over their politics, Lord over their Facebook posts, Lord over their emotions, Lord over their theology. He's Lord over everything. The disciple recognizes that Jesus is Lord over every facet of his life, every action, every thought, every word. And as Jesus directs, the disciple does. Let me illustrate this for you quickly. i got a couple of illustrations. I'm going to use our brother Farhad because he moved away and he ain't here. Right. <laughs> But I did get his permission. Don't worry if you're ever like not here. I'm not going to use you. But here are some uh, quick examples of what humble, glad, quick obedience to Jesus looks like. I remember once that Farhad came to me and he asked me about gay marriage and politics. He said, I know that God hates it, but I think that the Constitution allows for it. What do I do? What do I do? And I explained to him that Jesus is Lord over his politics. And that he cannot abandon Jesus just because he's entered a voting booth. Jesus goes with you in there. Remember that this year. Jesus goes with you into the voting booth. You don't abandon him just because you've entered the political arena. And Farhad looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> when I asked him if there was anything he'd like to push back on or debate about, Farhad said, and this is a paraphrase, but if you know Farhad, this sounds fair. What is there to discuss? He is Lord. That's the end of it, and I'm not going to argue with God. That's stupid. Second example of Farhad, and this one's a bit more difficult. Whenever Farhad got married, he came to me and told me that his family wanted him to have a Muslim wedding in addition to his Christian wedding. And he asked me, can I? What do I do? I explained to him that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that we can't have any associations with idolatry. And since they'd be reading the Quran and offering up prayers to a false god, that he would have to tell his family, No. And after our talk, I asked him, what are you going to do? And he replied, the question is not, what am I going to do? The Bible is clear. God is clear that I cannot do it. The question is, how am I going to tell my family? This is going to be difficult. That's, I'm not trying to make you guys think that Farhad's not a sinner. He lived with me for nine months. Dude sins, right? <laughs> but that is what quick, sweet, and glad obedience to the Lord Jesus looks like. That's a disciple. That's what a disciple does. The disciple can reason like this. Jesus freed me. He saved me. Surely his will and commandment is for my good. He commands me thus because he loves me. He didn't die for me to now command me to do something that is not good for me. So I can now, with peace in my heart, submit sweetly and obey and follow him in all that he commands, even if it's not initially what I wanted or is going to be very difficult. The disciple desires to obey Jesus because of the love that Christ has shown to him. And now we come to our fourth and final change of desire in the disciple. 
And that's this, the disciple has a desire to proclaim Jesus. In verse 19 and 20 we read, And Jesus did not permit him to go with him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus told him, no, you can't come with me. But I have something else in mind for you. Jesus had a different task for him to do. And briefly, before we get into that task, I hope that you see yourself, Christian. I hope that you see yourself as a slave that Jesus has saved to do work. Jesus works his slaves, not for your salvation. You've received that through no merit of your own. You've received your right standing with God through faith alone because of the mercy of God shown to you in Christ. You do nothing to earn that. But that doesn't mean that there's no work for you to do. I really hope that you see that you have been saved for a purpose, to glorify God in the work that he sets before you. I hope you view yourself as a slave with work rather than a saint who's just sitting around waiting to die. Though you are a saint, right? But you get what I'm saying. You're not just waiting around to die and go to heaven. There's work for you to do. And that work is to proclaim Christ. Jesus commissions his disciples to proclaim, to speak, to use the mouth to communicate a message. Not just in how you live, though that has to be there too, with your words, right? And what is to be the content of that proclamation? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. Jesus calls his disciples to go out and proclaim the mercy that he has shown to them. He does not call all of his disciples to do what I'm doing right now, but he calls all of us to go out and bear witness to him. For the man in our text, he was to go out and proclaim that the Son of the Most High God had set him free from the power of Satan. He was to go and tell all his friends and family what Jesus did for him. How, though he hadn't done anything to deserve it, that the Son of God had mercy upon him and graciously freed him and saved him. Now for us, on the other side of the cross, our proclamation is a bit different, right? But it is the same theme. It is the mercy that Jesus has shown to us. We are commissioned by Christ to go out and declare his glorious gospel. To go out and be a witness to him. To gladly and boldly tell people of what Jesus has done for us. We're to go out and give witness for him. right? We're to go and tell people, let me tell you who I was. Right? And you're the best expert on your own life, aren't you? We're narcissists. Let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you about my sin. And now let me tell you of what Jesus did for me. How he forgave me. How he transformed me. I looked to him in faith and he saved me. Won't you follow him with me? All of us are called to this. We're to go out and tell of the love and forgiveness of sins and transforming power that Jesus has shown to us and then call others to repent and believe and join us. This is your work, and it may look different for everyone, right? And what I mean is some of us are more eloquent than others. Some of us have greater opportunity than others. But whether it be to your children, to your unsafe spouse, to your coworkers, to your friends, wherever it might be, whatever your situation is, this is your primary job, is to give a witness to Christ. 
And I want to encourage you. You can do this. You can do this. I got a couple examples from the text. You can do this. Some people think that what they've done is too wicked to go out and now talk about Jesus. They feel like a hypocrite, right? Uh, No sinful past can disqualify you from doing this. Look at the dude in our text. He was a Gentile, a former pagan, formerly possessed by up to 6,000 demons. If Jesus can use him, surely (laughs) he can use you to glorify himself in proclaiming who he is. And I want you to know as well that you don't have to be a theological genius to do this either, do you? How much time had, had this guy spent with Jesus before Jesus sent him out? Less than a day. Seriously, Jesus gets out the boat, heals this guy, gets back in the boat, goes across. Probably a few hours with Jesus talking to him. And Jesus commissions him. Actually, fun fact, the first um, missionary ever in the New Testament is this guy. Everyone else, Jesus says, don't tell anyone who I am, be quiet. And this guy, he says, go tell him. First missionary Jesus ever sends out is this guy. And he had not spent much time with Jesus, right? But he had experienced the grace of Christ. You don't have to know the height and depth and breadth of theology to give a witness for Jesus. You don't. Truthfully, to give a witness to Jesus, you have to know very little. Very little. And I'm not saying not to study, right? Give me a break, right? Like I would ever tell anyone not to study the Bible, right? But you don't have to know a whole lot. In fact, some of the most bold witnesses for Jesus I have ever met have been uneducated country folk from Minford who give their personal testimony and then they simply declare, there is a God, you've sinned against him, you deserve to go to hell, but that same God gave his son in your place to die for sinners so that they could be forgiven and reconciled to God because Jesus has taken their punishment in their place. Repent and believe on Christ and be saved. Reject him and suffer the wrath of God. And that is the sum total of their message. And these people, as simple as they might be in their theological understanding, are glorifying the Son of God by telling others the mercy that has been shown to them and is extended to everyone who will believe. They don't know much but they tell what they know. You can do this because you know more than that man did on that day. And this man was bold for Jesus too, wasn't he? Verse 20 says that he went and proclaimed Christ in the Decapolis. Literally, that means the ten cities. Ten cities. This man traveled from city to city to tell anyone and everyone, whoever would listen to him, and there's miles in between these cities, probably traveling on foot from one place another day's journey to another place, and so on and so forth. And I imagine he kept making his route like a circuit rider, right? He just keeps telling people what Jesus has done. He does not stop declaring the mercy of Christ, and he doesn't care what anyone thinks. He's zealous for the glory of the Lord Jesus. But where does this boldness come from? That's the question. That's what most of us lack, right? We lack boldness. We lack zeal. Most of us are scared and timid when they think of evangelism, right? I could mention, I'm going to preach on evangelism tonight, and people's stomachs just flip, right? Like, oh, no. (laughs) What was it then that made this man so bold? It was love. I'm not trying to be cheesy, right? I'm serious. It was love. Love made this man bold for Jesus. This man was so consumed with love for the Lord Jesus because of the undeserved mercy that Christ had shown to him, he was so overwhelmed with love for Christ that it drove his fear out. Love will make us bold, won't it? It's not the same kind of love 
Have you ever seen parents do real wild stuff on videos because one of their kids was about to get hurt? I'm starting to experience that a little bit. Love makes you bold. This man's love for Christ made him bold. Love is going to encourage us to move past our fear because our desire is to see Christ glorified and our desire to see him glorified and receive the fullness of the reward for his suffering will make us bold. It'll take the fear out of us. And that kind of boldness, that kind of love is only going to come whenever we begin to grasp how much he loves us and with and, and the depth of what he has done for us. It will be our natural response of gratitude. But we see here clearly that a disciple is bold and zealous to proclaim Christ to every ear that will listen. All right? So in light of all that we've seen this evening, what it means to belong to Christ, right? The, the new desires of the heart of the believer, what a real disciple looks like, I have to ask this. Please listen. Have you been converted have you been converted? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? I'm not asking if you've had a huge conversion experience like the man in this passage. I know a lot of you haven't. Some of you, praise God, have been Christians from your youth. You don't remember a time that you didn't love the Lord Jesus. And praise God for that. I'm not asking you if you've had a great conversion experience like this man had. And I'm also not asking you if you're nailing all of these characteristics perfectly. Because nobody is. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking if your life has been changed by God to reflect the characteristics of a new creature in Christ. That's what I'm asking. It is abundantly clear from this passage and many others that Jesus changes his people. Right? When we come to know him, when we are regenerated, brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, when we are converted, receive Christ by faith, a great transformation takes place at the root of, Right? Our heart changes immediately, and then that transformation continues from one degree to the next, our sanctification. That much is absolutely undeniable. It's undeniable. So have you been converted? Every converted person is a disciple. Are you a true disciple? Because you've never met a saved person who is not a disciple. If you meet someone who says they're a Christian and they are not a disciple, they are a liar or they are self-deceived. Every believer is a disciple. Is what was true of this man true of you? Are the things that we've seen this evening, are they the major themes of your life? I'm serious. Please listen. If someone followed you around daily, would they see these things in your life? And I ask this earnestly because of, we've, we've had to practice church discipline and we're going to have to practice it later this evening. Many people are self-deceived or they're deceiving others by saying that they're Christians and they're not. I must ask. I must ask. Do you desire Christ? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Do you learn from him? Do you obey him? Do you proclaim him? Again, I'm not asking if you're doing these things perfectly, but is it there? If not, then I fear, and I can say with the authority of a minister of Christ, that you don't know him savingly. But rather, you're externally religious. You're nominally Christian. You're formally Christian. Maybe you come to church because it's expected of you by somebody, 
Or, or maybe it's to keep up appearances while you live a life of impenitent sin. But regardless of the reason that you're here, if your life doesn't reflect at all, if it doesn't at all reflect the transformed life of a disciple, then you should know that you are not a Christian. But you can be. You can be. You can be saved. Turn to Christ and live. That's it. That's it. As God says through Isaiah, turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is none other. Turn to me and live. Look to him in faith, acknowledging your sinfulness, and yet looking to him to save you, and he will do it. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out. Come to him in faith. Come to him in faith, and he will save you. Repent and believe on him and be saved and become a disciple and be transformed and live life for once. Because there's only life in him. But now a word to the Christian. I know I've been up here for 48 minutes and 26 seconds, but you're all right. A word to the Christian, to the disciple, the one who knows they've been changed and are still being changed by the grace of Christ. Rejoice. I say it every week. It's my favorite thing I get to tell you. Rejoice, right? Our faith is one of rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So rejoice in the mercy that Jesus has shown to you. Those of us who know that we are disciples, who follow Jesus, see your story and see yourself in this account of the formerly possessed man and see that what Jesus has done for him, he did for you. How Jesus transformed him, he transformed you and will continue to transform you until you receive your glorified body and your sin nature is destroyed. Rejoice that your life is now so intertwined with Christ that you cannot imagine a life without him. Rejoice and praise God for the mercy he's shown to you in his son. And now, from that joy, live for him. Live for him simply. Here's a big blanket statement. Imitate this formerly possessed man turned Christian as a new creature in Christ with new desires and new motives and love for Jesus. Go now and live for him and live for him in all the ways we've seen. Love him. Learn from him. Obey him. Proclaim him. Live for him in all things. In other words, be his disciple. And as my grandfather used to tell me, as hard as you once lived for Satan under his dominion, live for Christ now. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word. There's so much in your word that speaks to us. As we've got to see the last three weeks from this one text, there's so much, Lord. Your word is dripping with truth, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see it and hearts that are receptive to take it in. God, we can't repent if you don't grant us repentance. So, Lord, I ask that you grant every believer in here repentance because I know none of us, Lord, are nailing the things that we looked at this evening. And God, if we have unbelievers among us or false professors, false converts, fake Christians among us, grant them repentance and save their souls. Glorify yourself, Lord. Save your people for your glory. And please continue to conform us to the image of Christ as we follow him. We love you and we thank you for what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.